Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Pure as water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. Thank you, Lord God. Please bless us today, Lord, with your wisdom, and uh, draw us unto yourself. And Lord, uh, put us in your word, Lord, constantly, constantly, building up our faith. And uh, thank you, Lord. Amen. And we're going to start off with this revelation about healing and promises for the bride. This is given to Claire Pinar, 3.14.22. I dreamed I was on the outreach Zoom meeting, and I was the only one there. I believe I represent the bride body because my name means brilliance, which uh, represents the righteous acts of the saints and her lampros garment in Revelation 19. Michael was on the other side of the screen in the Zoom meeting, and he was very smiley. Uh, Michael represents Father because his name means who is like God. Amen. The Zoom outreach represents the Father's outreach through his man-child reformers to his elect in these days. Um. He threw green leaves all over towards the screen like he wanted to shower me with green leaves. Well, the green leaves represent the healing that will be given to the nations through the Worldwide Man-Child Reformer Ministries. Uh, He will pour out his anointing and gifts upon the man-child and the bride to bring healing to his elect among the nations. Revelation 22, verse 2 says, In the midst of the street thereof, and on this side of the river, and on that was the tree of life, bearing twelve manner of fruits, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. As you know, Jesus the man-child went forth and brought much healing. And so it will be in our day. Then he reached further back into his room and took what looked like pieces of rainbow and started throwing these at me too. Some of these pieces looked like mini rainbows and some looked like uh, broken off pieces of bigger rainbow with all the colors. Still, other pieces were only one specially colored piece of the rainbow. (laughs) Well, God's elect, um, even his first fruits, have gained varying levels of his wisdom and maturity and are from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And they all display the rainbow attributes of the light of Christ. 
to varying degrees. And, and when he returns, he will fill us up in the areas that we're lacking and complete our understanding. Amen. I, I think others, she said, um, then appeared to receive these rainbow pieces, and I was no longer alone on the Zoom meeting. So it's catching, right? The bride will be the first to partake of the healing uh, of the nations. And um, what is it that will draw the church and save their lives? The rainbow represents escape from the worldwide destruction. So this represents grace to escape the curse of death. And in this case, also, this is by the knowledge of the coat of many colors, just like Joseph wore, who escaped death. And Jesus is the light, and the colors are the attributes of the light, the nature of Jesus. 2 Peter 1 and 2, Grace to you and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power hath granted unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. It's already been done. Through the knowledge of him that called us by his glory and virtue. But of course, we have to know it's been done, right? Whereby he hath granted unto us his precious and exceeding great promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature. That is, those precious promises. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world by lust. <clears throat> Well, notice uh, what is about to be taught will cause the church to escape the corrupt world and its curse of death. Amen? Yea, and for this very cause, adding on your part all diligence in your faith. Well, notice all of the seven attributes of Christ, the light, are provided in faith. And there was no comma after diligence in the Greek. So these are the seven uh, refractions of light through a prism. Supply virtue, and in your virtue knowledge, notice that each one is in the previous one, and in your virtue knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control patience, and in your patience godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, they make you not idle or unfruitful unto the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that knowledge, of course, is power, right? And notice that these attributes are gained by the knowledge of Christ. And also that everything has already been provided. We just need to partake of it, right? We need to ask God for grace to partake of it. Amen. So the rainbow, uh, she said, is a sign of Father's promise to never again flood the entire earth. Genesis nine thirteen through 16. Uh, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass that when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature on, of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
and the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's upon the earth. Praise the Lord. And she said, I asked uh, the Lord for a verse by faith at random and received Psalm 147 and 3. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Praise be to God. <laughs> Amen. Okay, again, the importance of gathering in this knowledge of the Word. Um, we call this purchasing the pen of a ready writer. Uh, Claire Pinar, 311.22. I believe this dream is about leaves for the healing of the nations. I dreamed I was in a Christian bookstore. I believe Claire is still in this representing the bride uh, to show herself approved. 2 Timothy 2 and 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I was looking for a mechanical pencil to do Bible study, but I was so it was so difficult to find one. There were many engraved, overpriced pencils all around me but nothing that was simple and inexpensive. Well, I think this probably represents that these overpriced pencils represent the works of our hands, leaning on the arm of the flesh, which always costs money. But God's works, represented by the simple mechanical pencil, are inexpensive and simple because we purchase them by our faith in the blood of Jesus. And also, we purchase them uh, with our life. You have to give up something in order to take time to study the Word of God, but you're putting the Word, who is Jesus, in your heart when you do. I waited so long, and I was so patient with the lady at the cashier. And this brings to mind Revelation 3 and 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined by fire, that thou mayest become rich, and white garments, that thou mayest clothe thyself. And this uh, waiting patiently on the cashier probably represents uh, waiting on the Lord, uh, which produces the fruit of the Spirit, especially long-suffering, which brings this refinement. Amen. There were many other pretty things available, and I saw many other women come into the store buying things. But I only wanted to buy a pencil. Well, that's the way it is with the bride. They've got an interest in uh, studying the Word, marking the Word, right? So none of these other women were talking or smiling, and they all seemed to buy gifts for other people. I was only buying one thing for myself, however, uh, well, that tells you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be gathered unto you, right? However, I had to buy a two-pack. And that brings to mind this, Isaiah 55, uh, 1 and 2. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy 
wine and milk without money and without price. Amen. Uh, it's by grace, isn't it? Right? We do buy it with our life, though, because you have to give up something to do this. Right? And that is your life. Uh, wherefore, do you spend money for that which is not bread? They do it all the time. And your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. Well, God's ministers are not to charge for God's gifts, but to live by faith. Freely you have received, freely give. So if you want if you go find out somebody that's doing that, well that's more you're more likely to find truth there. I asked the cashier to give me extra lead because I was going to write a lot in my Bible. She did not have extra lead and told me to go to another convenience store, but I, I did not want to. And while there, the Holy Spirit told me to go home, so I did. Well, we must trust the Lord for our manna daily and not store up or, uh, or it'll just breed worms, right? Uh, you can't save your Bible study today for tomorrow because you have some you have to get today. And uh, if, it, if it breeds worms, of course, it's lost forever. If you don't get it today, it's lost forever. Now, we are commanded to gather a day's portion every day that he would prove us whether he would keep, we would keep his commandments or not. Yeah. I went to my father's old house. Well, Claire's father represents our heavenly father. His old house represents the old paths of the original church that was uh, imputed with power, right? Jeremiah 6 and 16 says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and you shall find rest for your souls. So I climbed into my dad's side of the bed. The bedding was really old blue bedding uh, with white little flowers printed on it. The blue bedding, she said, represents resting in the heavenlies, and the white flowers represent purity. Well, the bride uh, rests in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, who is the Father of eternity, in sanctification and purity from the world and its ways. Amen. Uh, rest has to go along with study in the, in the Word because you always see things you need, but you can always ask and believe you have received, and then you're at rest, right? Amen. I then looked up, and Michael came into the room. I looked down and realized that I had a green clutch or small purse and a mechanical pencil, and I saw green leaves in my Bible. Mm -hmm. I believe the green clutch and the green leaves represent Father's provision for tribulation and ministry. Amen. Then I replied, I don't have anyone to shop with, but look, now I have this pencil, and there's one for Rion too. Then Michael said something else, and I don't know 
what it was. Perhaps he said something about the green leaves on the page. He was being kind and supportive and smiled at me. Well, it's important for the bride to study the Word and gain the fruits of the Spirit in order to be able to pass on the leaves of healing to the nations. Amen. Remember, Jesus sent out the bride, didn't he? He was the man-child, and he sent out the bride into every place that he was going to what? Come. That's right. So Psalm 45, 1-17 says, My heart overfloweth with a goodly matter. I speak the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Well, the tongue uh, writes the word upon the heart. And the word is the nature of Jesus, right? Which brings the man, child, and bride to maturity. And uh, it's that's spoken of right here. So thou that is Christ in the man-child, art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O mighty one, thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride on prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp. The people fall under thee. They are in the heart of the king's enemies. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of equity is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And all thy garments shall smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia, and out of ivory palaces stringed instruments have made thee glad. Amen. King's daughters are among thy honorable women. At thy right hand does stand the queen in gold of Ophir. That's the bride. Hearken, O daughter, still speaking to the bride, and consider and incline thine ear. That's what she was doing with that pen of the ready writer, right? Studying the word, getting it in her heart, right? Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So will the king desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and reverence thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. And the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter within the palace is all glorious. Her clothing is inwrought with gold. She shall be led unto the king in broidered work. That's number one. That's in, like in the book of uh, Esther. You know, she was chosen out of the, all the fair women in the kingdom and brought into the king's house. And then, of course, tribulation happened with Haman the beast and so on and so forth. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be led. 
They shall enter into the king's palace. Notice it's after the bride, right? Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children. In other words, the bride is going to raise these people up, these virgins up, whom thou shalt make princes in all of the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the peoples give thee thanks forever and ever. Okay, here's a revelation given to Marie Kelton. Um, she, she called it, Father gave 100%. It is enough, quote-unquote. I had a dream that I was, that it was a sunny day, and I was parked in, in the rest, by the way, by Brandy and Amber's house. I was in my car, and I was sitting in the passenger seat on the right side. So, I guess this means letting the Lord drive by obedience to Him. We're just followers, right? I had my door open. I believe it probably means to, to hear from the Father. Then Don, meaning world ruler, representing the Father, came up and said to me, This should be enough. And he handed me $100 in $20 bills. Well, I believe this is meaning what the Father gave was his son, and 100% is taken care of. Uh, when he said this should be enough, uh, that's what we should believe, right? So we can't add to what he has done because he delivered us from the curse and provided everything at the cross. I told him that he didn't have to, but he gave it to me anyway. Um, okay, it's true. He didn't have to, but he gave it anyway. That's what grace is all about. So representing the five $20 bills represents grace because he didn't have to. It was uh, an unearned gift. And wherever we like it, it is our fault because of unbelief, for he gave it all. Even our rebellion is from unbelief. Esther 2 and 9 and also verse 13 says, And the maiden pleased him. And she obtained kindness of him. I believe this is talking about the Holy Spirit. Please the Holy Spirit in you, and you will not miss God. And he speedily gave her her things for purification. Speedily. Notice that. With her portions. And the seven maidens who were meet to be given her out of the king's house. And he, that was those, those seven attributes of God, right? And he removed her and her maidens to the best place of the house of the women. And also verse 13. Then in this wise came the maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. Whatsoever she desired was given her. 100%, right? <laughs> Oh, praise you, Father. It's all been given. All we got to do is reach out and take. 
Okay, and also Claire got this in on six eight twenty two. I will make all thy border of precious stones. Her first vision, she said, I dreamed I looked like a bride, representing the bride body. I saw a hand being put into a glove that looked like knight's armor. And when the hand went inside the glove, it looked more like a bag of treasure. Then I realized it was my own hand, and I could feel many different jewels in the bag. Well, we've had uh, many dreams of the bride receiving gifts when the man-child returns. I believe this is what this is talking about. She said, I had a vision of the jewels in the dream, and they were so beautiful and sparkling in the following colors, blue, red, green, pink, purple, a light, a lighter blue, and uh, pure like a diamond. The precious stones are given to the bride. They represent valuable gifts of God's nature, which are a protection as armor is a protection, right? And we know that righteousness delivereth from death. There's your protection, right? Isaiah 54, 11 through 15 says this, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will set thy stones in fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires. I will make thy pinnacles of rubies, and thy gates of carbuncles, and all thy border of precious stones. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. So it'll be the Lord teaching then, you know, when you have all of his gifts abiding in you, his treasures abiding in you, then what comes through you is him, right? And great shall be the peace of thy children. Praise be to God. Thank you for that, Father. In righteousness shalt thou be established, and thou shalt be far from oppression. For thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they may gather together, but not by me. And whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall because of thee. Hmm. All right, her second vision. Later in the same night, I was cupping my hands, and a fine white salt was being poured into them. I was wearing a beautiful white robe with long draping sleeves. There was so much salt, it was overflowing from my hands. It felt calming and therapeutic. The salt of the earth, I believe, represents uh, preservation. That they didn't have refrigerators back then. Salt was very valuable for that. Uh, Jesus told his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. In other words, his disciples had a job to do. Uh, the word in his disciples preserves people from the curse of sin and of death. Amen. Decay, in other words, right? And also, um, Eve Brast had this on 11-5-2018. 
provision to preserve and build the kingdom. Amen. That's where we're at right now, folks, that provision. I had a dream involving a Monopoly game board. It was no coincidence that as I sat down to write, an announcement on the radio said that on this day in history, November the 5th, 1935, Parker Brothers introduced the game of Monopoly to the public. How's that for a confirmation? <laughs> so I believe Eve is representing the bride of the last Adam, and uh, which is Jesus, of course, in this dream. Eve said, I dreamed I was sitting in the dining room of our old house on Vanderbilt Road in Texas. Uh, Vanderbilt is representative of the wealthy elites. According to Wikipedia, the Vanderbilts were once the wealthiest family in America. The Vanderbilts' prominence lasted until the mid-20th century when the family's ten great Fifth Avenue mansions were torn down, and most other Vanderbilt houses were sold or turned into museums in what has been referred to as the fall of the House of Vanderbilt. Hmm. Instead of a dining table, there was a green card table. And she puts a note here, the deep state elite House of Cards is falling. This is true. It was dark in the kitchen area, but there was a light shining down on the card table. Father is signifying the light on or calling attention to this event. There was an empty Monopoly board game on the table, and three men with slicked back black hair sitting around the Monopoly board with me. Well, black hair, I believe, represents submitted to darkness, as the 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of the hair, right? And the elite uh, behind the deep state are playing the game of spiritual monopoly, and they're losing due to God plundering them to redistribute their wealth. Yes, it sounds a lot like the Vanderbilt, right? The only thing each of us had been given was the usual amount of Monopoly money uh, that each player receives. There were no houses or hotels or game tokens to move around the board. So the value or its lack of thereof is not in the material possessions, but in the funny money itself. <laughs> Eve was just sitting there, resting in the Lord. All things are provided freely in the rest of faith. The monopoly money, now thought to be worthless, is the dollar that once supported the deep state. And as we will see, they are losing the game just like the Vanderbilts. And the dollar is going to go the way of the dinosaur. <laughs> 
Suddenly a pair of dice appeared above the board as if an invisible pair of hands was shaking them. Yep, all of the, everything is in God's hands. He is sovereign, right? Then the dice were cast onto the board, and they came up three and four, equaling seven. Wow. So God rolls the dice, which are his, and he wins the game. He has his own people at the table to receive the gift. The three men all declared, seven, exclamation, 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 in a defeated and disgusted tone. <laughs> Seven's God's number, right? He won. So, so God has defeated the elite who plan to use this currency for their own new world order. And, of course, in these days, um, to depopulate the world. Then they all got up from the table and took all their Monopoly money and stacked it in a large pile on top of my money, and then it all turned into real money as they left the game. <laughs> well, the revaluation of currencies are to come up on a par with the dollar, in other words, the dollar will not be worth more than the rest of the world's currency which, of course, left, gave them the advantage, right? But as we see here, the dollar will be able to be traded in for the new rainbow currency. Hence, those with worthless currencies will find they have become real money on the way to making a one-world currency. And this is necessary to bring in the mark of the beast, too, by the way. You can't stop it. It's from God. Uh, but in the short term, this will be used to build the kingdom, and as in the temple of God, right? But, but uh, you know, the temple of God these days is his people, and to build his people, the word has to get out. Obama had planned to take the Christians down, and then the elite would take all. But Trump, who as Cyrus did, plundered Babylon, deep state, and will, through the RV, uh, contribute vast wealth towards the rebuilding of the kingdom. Amen. That's what happened with Cyrus, and that's what's going to happen now. I then realized I'd won, even though I didn't know I'd been playing. <laughs> yes, the bride is going to win, because it's all going to be a gift to her, right? So none of us have been playing their game, but like this, it will be given, right? And Eve could represent the corporate bride, of course. And she said, I was so amazed by this, and then I woke up. Yeah. I looked at my phone, and the time was 3.33. And I thought of Jeremiah 33.3. Because I had asked Father to show me more about his plans and what he is doing. And Jeremiah 33 3 says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and I will show thee great things and difficult which thou knowest not. So I said months before this that I wondered if 
the elite would be taken down so that they could not be involved in this revaluation and that their currencies value would uh, then be left to be divided to the people of God. And now I know it was a word of knowledge. So, I asked Father for a word concerning the Monopoly game and the black-haired men, who I believe represents the elite deep state, she said, and my finger was on, Shalt thou reign? Well, this text is speaking about uh, Zedekiah representing the fat cats of Christianity who will not reign uh, in this new kingdom, but neither shall the Babylonian deep state because both of these are together parts of the dragon who is cast down in Revelation 12. And Jeremiah twenty-two fifteen on down is, says, we're going to go 12 to 17, but in the place whither they have led him captive, there shall be, there shall he die. He shall see his, this land no more. Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness. I want to say a lot of preachers are doing that and a lot of politicians are doing that too. All of the leftists are doing that. And his chambers by injustice that useth his neighbor's service without wages and giveth him not his hire that saith, I will build me a wide house and spacious chambers, and cutteth him out windows, and it is sealed with cedar, and painted with vermilion. Shalt thou reign, there it is, shalt thou reign. So those who were sure they would reign by collecting enormous profits from the revaluation and plundering God's people, have lost it. And the people's monopoly money is now worth much more for the till has the money, the elite's money in it, and it will be divided as God sees fit. But thine eyes and thy heart are not, but for covetousness and for shedding innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. Well, now most of the world can see that. Okay. I then asked for a word for the men giving me all their money, and my finger was on Matthew 6 and 29, in context 28 through 34. And why are you anxious concerning raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God doth so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? And when I pasted this underlined text in this article, I uh, accidentally turned to the background red, but this underlined part was white. And I know of no way that this could naturally happen, and my accident was providential. So believe God to supply for you in the coming wilderness as he did for Israel. Amen. No, notice 
their supply was supernatural out of heaven, right? Verse 31, Be not therefore anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom, his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. How powerful. Be not therefore anxious for the morrow, for the morrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Amen. And also uh, this verse came to mind, Proverbs thirteen twenty two, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the righteous. Yes, indeed. Okay, this is a very interesting uh, prophetic word from uh, Julie Wedby. Uh, it's called the Bridal Chamber, seven three twenty two. My beautiful children, the appointed time has come for my espoused to enter the bridal chamber. Your journey has been long and the road most difficult. Enter in, my beloved, for I will now close the door to the inner chamber, the most holy of holies, where no thing defiled may enter in. Uh, in displaying the glorified life while living the crucified one, you have carried my torch of love, the love that burns deeply from within my heart for all my creation. You have emptied self and its desires in order that only I may enter in, fashioning your vessels into sharply refined instruments through which I manifest my presence in this realm. My torch has been the keeper of your soul. It has been a light in the darkness. It has been your shelter through the storm of this journey. The burning love of my heart has carried you when you were too weak to even lift your head. And it has been the healing balm for your wounds. And you have given me everything that has ever been closest to your heart. And in turn, I have given you my heart. There is nothing that compares to this gift. You have allowed me to make my home in your heart, to tabernacle with you, and you have been given an open door and the key to freely enter the holiest of places in me. Our journey has been one of great challenges and great obstacles, but together we have overcome them all. The gift that you possess has been a beacon of hope to many, a breath of air in the dark places of this life. But now I will do a new thing with you. I will always share what I am about to do with those I love. And I tell you this, this chapter of your journey will now end. I have called each one of you, and I know you by name. I have given you 
a name that is completely unique from all others, a name that embodies our journey together. Uh, that could be the name of Jesus, you know. We take on his name at baptism by faith, but we're taking it on continually as the water of the word puts to death our old life, right? And nature, the name means nature, character, and authority. She continues, I have fashioned you for my purposes, and your name has been engraved on my hand, and you are sealed. You who have overcome will find your name in my book of remembrance. You wear my signet ring, for you are ordained to rule and to reign, fulfilling all my purpose for you. It is my robe that you wear, dipped in the blood of my sacrifice, that has given you the victory over all things, for I have purchased this for my espoused. You have not questioned the cup you have been given to drink, but rather eagerly drunk of its contents, not questioning the will of your Creator in order that my will only is done in and through you on earth as it is in heaven. My kingdom and your home. Amen. You have separated yourself from all that is impure and sought to be holy, in all manner of things pertaining to this existence. Your obedience has been costly in this realm, but what good is it if a man gains all in this world only to lose his soul for eternity? Yep. This life is only a vapor, but your time here, since being born again in me, has been served well. You will hear the long-awaited words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. For my reward is with me to give unto you according to your righteous deeds. Your treasure is in me, and my treasure is knowing you have given all of you in complete surrender and obedience. You who have overcome will inherit my kingdom as my sons and my daughters. As I close the door to the past and our journey thus far, I give you my complete peace as you let go of all that has been your reality here. This will not be of any matter to you now, for I am doing a new thing. You would not even believe it if I told you beforehand. The cares of this life will leave you, and the attachments will be taken away. And all that remains for you now is my love for you and for those yet to come into the fold. What once was will now be no longer. It is now a time to mourn any, it is not a time to mourn any more, for the former things are passing away. Rejoice that our time has come. The past is done, and you are now entering the realm of timelessness. And I would say the past here is speaking about the crucifixions, uh, especially those from the wicked around you. Right? The realm of oneness with your Creator. 
He who is outside of time, outside of the dimensions that I will now release you from, enter in my loves, enter fully in and immerse yourself in my pure essence. Your garment of righteousness is the fine linen that I have prepared for you, that which has been weaved so intricately during your journey into intimacy with me. The garment for you will radiate my glory from within, as we will consummate our union in oneness for all eternity. Each thread of your garment represents a moment where you overcame, a moment during your time here when you chose me above all else. Each thread of this garment pulses with the glorified light that I used when I formed you so beautifully in your mother's womb. Your radiance will be like a precious jewel. Each thread that I weave anchors the purity of our relationship together, every fiber, fiber harmonizing with the other, creating the tapestry that is you made in the image of me. The very name of who I am is encoded inside each fiber of you, for you are mine. Each thread of your garment will now sing of my glory, a glory I give to no other. The frequency you have formerly known will be raised now to come back into alignment with perfection. A pure and spotless garment I have created for each of you woven from my perfect love. You are my treasured ones. You are my jewels. Come, my beloved, espoused into the bridal chamber. Come and meet your king, Yahushua. Well, okay. Glory be to God. God uh, has wonderful plans for his bride and through the bride, to the body. As we know, Jesus was a type and a shadow of the man-child in our day, and he said he was coming again as a little baby born to a woman in John 16. Uh, and he's coming again in a corporate body we call the man-child reformers. And the Bible calls them the man-child. And their job is once again to repeat history and bring uh, the woman into the wilderness. Now, inside the woman is the bride, as we've seen in the book of Esther. A part of the woman is the bride, and that is the queen. And Jesus sent forth the, the bride, which were those first fruits disciples of his that John called the bride, right? Uh, and to raise up the church to come into the image of Christ and to put on those beautiful garments, right? So God's got a perfect plan. It will be perfectly fulfilled. Um, the question is, will it be with you and with me, right? We uh, offer ourselves, you know, as the prophecy clearly shows, we offer ourselves to the Lord um, a sacrifice, of self to God so that he can use these vessels for his glory. 
uh, we take that pen of a ready writer and we write upon our heart the Word of God, uh, which is eternal, which when it comes out of us and goes into others, it is also eternal. And so we are uh, the salt of the earth. We are to preserve God's people around us with the Word of God. God's going to do a powerful, powerful work. The, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And so the bride will be the first to be given that gift, just as it was in the Gospels. And the bride will distribute this gift among the people. Uh, the healing of the nations, I'm sure the healing is both physical and spiritual. Um, we've we've uh, lived under such a curse, and it's been passed on to us through the blood. And yet we've been given new blood. And uh, Jesus said, except you drink my blood and eat my body, you have no part in me. Right? So we, uh, we do partake of that life of Christ in us and uh, that word of God in us so that Jesus can live in us and through us to the people around us. Lord, we thank you so much for your uh, wondrous plan. And uh, it's been pretty clearly delineated here today. Your wondrous plan is to live in us and through us and to bring others into the same relationship. So thank you, Father, for what you're doing. Thank you for finishing the good work we started. Thank you that it is by grace and not by works. We enter into this grace through faith that our Lord Jesus uh, took away our sins and gave us his life, and that now we behold him in the mirror uh, and we're changed into that same glory from glory to glory. So that's it. We accept this free gift. We now see Jesus in the mirror. He lives in us now, and we don't live. And we thank you, Lord, for fulfilling all of our faith in this really true gospel that much of the world Christians don't know. And so thank you, Father, for the true gospel getting out that people can understand that it is by grace a gift from you, and we just accept this gift uh, by faith. We accept it. We believe it. We believe what God says. We confess it, the good confession in the sight of many witnesses. And we thank you, Lord, that it's all going to come to pass. Because with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So thank you, Father, for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're going to finish doing. Oh, Lord, we um, understand now that a lot of shaking is about to happen. And, um, yep, the plots and schemes of men are falling. Uh, the deep state is falling and being replaced by uh, <laughs> another kingdom, which is also going to prepare us for the tribulation. So, uh, Lord, um, all worldly kingdoms are just that, worldly kingdoms. There are some better than others, for sure, uh, and we thank God for that, too. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for your kingdom becoming um, all over this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you, saints, and God bless you. Good night. Well, thank you, Brother David, and God bless you.
Hello, saints. Good to be back with you again. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, I just praise you and I glorify you, Lord, for your holiness and the work that you're doing in each one of us to perfect us. And Lord, we thank you for your faith that you've given us. You said the, the faith the size of a mustard seed would move mountains. And Lord, uh, we thank you that uh, we believe your word. We believe every word of your word. And uh, Father, we just thank you for giving those revelations to us about what faith in prayer is. And I praise you, Father, for doing that today. You know, there's a lot of denominations out there today that deny <clears throat> that miracles are for this age. And if you deny that miracles are for this age, you deny the need and the privileges and the benefits of prayer. The twofold value of prayer lies first in sitting in his presence or in direct fellowship with the Father. And the second benefit is the answer that comes to us. John says, if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions which we have asked. For God the Father to hear my prayer, that's equivalent to his answering it. Now, for God to hear me is a miracle, but for God to answer my prayer regardless of a nature is a miracle. And whether my petition is for a postage stamp or for a million dollars, it's still a miracle. Any divine intervention, any arrest of the laws of nature that comes in answer to faith is a miracle. If prayer brings an answer, that answer is a miracle. It is then that faith has its true place in our lives. And the instant that you say there are no miracles in this dispensation, you deny that our walk is a walk by faith. And you declare that our walk is a walk by reason. <clears throat> I challenge you right now to find one place where God tells us as believers to walk by reason. God is a faith God. We are a faith family. We're all born by faith. We live by faith and by faith we live, breathe, and have our being in Christ. If there are no miracles, then there ain't no reason for faith. If there are no miracles, God can't answer prayer because he can't answer prayer of any character that is not a miracle. And you men and women out there that tell us that you believe the Bible to be the word of God, that it is God-breathed and without error in the original, and then in the same breath, tell me that the day of miracles is past. You're the most illogical thinkers the most inconsistent believers that the devil ever deluded. And I believe profoundly that the devil is the deceiver of the whole inhabited earth and of that type of Christian in particular. So let's come back to God, okay? Let's take our place. If we pray at all, we expect our prayers to be answered. And if that prayer is answered, God's done it. And if God has answered prayer, he has performed something outside of the realm of reason. And we have to give up our prayer life utterly, or we're going to have to believe in miracles. 
I believe in miracles. I believe in divine intervention. I believe that the prayer of faith reaches God, our Father, and when it reaches Him, He acts in response to that faith. And when He acts in response to our faith, His action is above our reason. It's in the realm of miracles, glory to God. And for me to deny the privilege and benefits of prayer would raise a storm of protest among those who deny miracles today. And I want you to see, brethren, as you listen today, that your position is untenable. Faith causes a man to act like God. Love makes him like God. Prayer is an excursion into the supernatural realm. You are in the throne room in the presence of God of all ability, and he has promised to hear your petition, and to give you your request. You have come on the ground of his word. He said, whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. You understand that the words that Jesus spoke were his Father's words. So you come now <clears throat> with the Father's words in your lips, and you're making your appeal on the ground of his own word. You're not a servant. You're not a slave, folks. You're a son. You are taking Jesus' place, acting in his stead, doing the Father's will. You know that you are the Father's will just as Jesus was the Father's will because of his own will. He begat you. You are the fruit of his own word. You came into being by his own power and ability, and you have received eternal life his very nature, and you recognize your place in Christ. You're acting the part of a son. The great unsaved world has to know what he has done for them in Christ. And so you're taking his ability, doing your part in the saving of men as Jesus did his part. You belong to a supernatural order of being, whether you recognize it or not, whether you have taken your place or not. You have the ability of the indwelling presence. You have the wisdom that Jesus had in his earth walk because Jesus had been made unto you wisdom. And you can think of yourself as linked up with ability and linked with omnipotence. And you remember, he said, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Now, I know that sense knowledge, reasoning, shrinks from this. But here's where the challenge of grace leads you. We dare to take our place, dare confess what we are, dare confess that he made us what we are, that we can do what he says we can do because he is at work within us. We have his word that he's in us. The latent ability and energy within us is his who gave it to us. And this makes the prayer life a masterful thing. You're not asking for the possible. You are always praying for the impossible. You are asking for things that can't be done by any human method. Fasting and long hours of prayer don't build faith. Reading books about faith and about men of faith and their exploits stirs in the heart a deep passion for faith, but it doesn't build faith. The word alone is the source of faith. But the word will not build faith unless it becomes a part of us. 
if you abide in me and my words have their place in you, that is, they have their place in our conduct. Jesus gave us the key. He said, the words that I speak are not mine, but my Father's. And the works that he did were not his, but his Father's. Jesus acted on his Father's words. Jesus never needed faith. He had it unconsciously. Faith is built in us by the word being built into us, by our acting upon the word. And it's the word of faith. And so as the Father builds that into us in our daily walk, faith becomes an unconscious asset. And we come to realize that we're part of him as a branch is a part of the vine. That he is a part of us as the van is a part of the branch. That we have his life and we have his ability. We have his love nature and we have his strength. That gives us an unconscious certainty as we go into his presence. We know that we're working together with him to one common end. And we know that he is the strength of our life. And we know that he is our ability. And we know that we are his righteousness in Christ. And we know that he needs us to carry out his will. And so we're taking our place as a son, carrying out his dream for man. There can't be a real prayer life that's not built upon the word. The word is the source of all faith. And that faith must be a quiet assurance, an unconscious faith. Something that you don't even think about. You can't conceive of Jesus saying to himself, can you? If I only had faith. Men and women who have really wrought and done mighty things have been those who had never thought about their faith life. The word was a reality. What he said solved the problem. This word is revelation knowledge. It's God wanting to speak with man. Now, first, there must be a reality of the incarnation. John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation can't be a doctrine or a theory or a metaphysical concept. It has to be as real as your birth is to you. And it's, it's not something that you argue about. But it is an absolute fact that God has broken into the human realm and has given to the senses a testimony of his reality. A lot of us have reveled in his earth walk, following him step by step in his miraculous career. We were thrilled at the demonstrations of divine ability that characterized him in every crisis. He faced a dead Lazarus as simply as you and I would face any ordinary event in life. He was perfectly quiet in the midst of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He walked on the waves that night in the tumult of a raging storm as quietly as you walk up and down on the sidewalk in front of your home. There was a royalty about his faith, a divine dignity that thrills us. But what does that resurrection mean? It means that the sin problem was settled, that Satan was conquered, humanity, humanity was redeemed, 
that God can now on legal grounds impart his nature, eternal life to man and make him a new creation. At last, man can become God's actual child, a very son, and there can be perfect fellowship between them. You know, when God imparted his nature to man, he imparted his righteousness also. So man is a partaker of the divine nature and the righteousness of God. Man can stand in the Father's presence as did Jesus in his earthly walk. Now God can give the Holy Spirit to live permanently in the body of this new creation. And he can build into that new creation through the word, the very character and nature of the incarnate one so that we can say softly, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And now we know that Romans 4 and 25 is a reality. Who was delivered up on the account of my trespasses and raised because I was justified. Praise God. The church has had a theological conception of our redemption. It has never been a part of our daily walk. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, who delivered us out of the authority of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have our redemption. And Ephesians 1, verse 7 says that the, that redemption is according to the riches of His grace. And in the mind of the Father, that redemption is a reality. And it would have been a total failure otherwise. That redemption meant that Satan had been utterly defeated, stripped of his authority and dominion, so that man, any man, no matter what his condition has been, how deeply he has been enmeshed in sin, it don't make any difference, can by the whispering of the name of Jesus and by confessing his lordship, step out of bondage into perfect liberty. Glory to God. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, or Satan shall not lord it over you. It has made the new man, the new creation, a master of sin. In the name of Jesus, the weakest child of God is an absolute master of Satan and demons. Glory to God. You who have received eternal life, as you listen, you can whisper, I am free. The Son has made me free, and I am free indeed. That redemption is a reality to the man who knows his place in Christ. You cannot be in Christ and not be free from the dominion of the devil. What substitutions we have had for the new creation. We've called it forgiveness of sin, being converted, getting religion, joining the church, and a whole bunch more. It was just one thing. You are a new creation, a child of God, a partaker of the divine nature. And these all represent the one fact that you have passed out of death, satanic nature, into life, the realm of God. And that's not just forgiveness of sin, but it's an impartation of a new nature. The old self, the old man was crucified with Christ 
a new man was resurrected, and when you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and confessed him as Lord, God imparted his own nature, eternal life, to you, and you became a new species, a new man over which Satan has no dominion whatsoever. It is one of the greatest gifts the church has ever had been given to her, and how little we have appreciated it. Before Jesus left us, he gave to the church a legal right to use his name. John 15 and 16 says, Whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. John 16, 23 and 24. And in that day you shall not pray to me. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if you shall ask anything of the Father, he will give it to you in my name. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive that your joy may be made full. And here he gives us the power of attorney to go to the Father and make our requests. And when you pray in that name, it's as though Jesus prayed, and there can be no denial. You remember Jesus said at the tomb of Lazarus, I thank thee, Father, that thou dost always hear me. And that is the ground for your assurance right there. John 14, 13, 14. He, he gives us in this the use of the name. He says, And whatsoever you shall ask or demand in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you shall ask anything in my name, that will I do. Folks, that's not a prayer. This is described in Acts chapter 3 and verse 6 where Peter and John heal a man at the beautiful gate by saying this, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And it's just like Paul used it in Acts chapter 16 and verse 18 where he spoke to the demon and the girl said, In the name of Jesus, come out of her. Or as the name was used on the day of Pentecost, when they baptize those people in the name of Jesus. You know, when we pray, we say, Our Father in Jesus' name. And that's the approach that he's given. That gives us the assurance of a hearing. Jesus said, recorded in John chapter 14, verse 17, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he said, He is with you, but he shall be in you. And on the day of Pentecost, we see four things take place in that upper room. Suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the room where they were sitting. The disciples were immersed in the Holy Spirit, and when they were immersed, they received eternal night and were made new creations. They were the first people aside from Jesus that were ever born again. Jesus, as you already know, is the firstborn. Now, the second thing that happened, tongues of fire set upon the brow of each one of them, indicating that method of propagating this gospel of the grace of God. It's going to be with tongues of fire. You remember Stephen's tongue couldn't be withstood. He had a tongue of fire. So they had to kill him to get rid of his tongue of fire. And the third thing, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. He couldn't come in until they were recreated. 
and the fourth, they all spake with other tongues. But I want you to notice that the great thing was they had not only received eternal life, but they had the one who had raised Jesus from the dead now living in them. We've made a great deal of receiving the Holy Spirit, and it has been major, and we have ignored the fact of his being in us. 1 John 4 and 4, 144. Ye are of God, my little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. For it is God who is at work within you, willing and working his own good pleasure. Not only are we born again, have become the very sons and daughters of God, but he comes and makes his home in us. That's a reality, folks. The ministry has kept the church in the bondage of sin consciousness ever since the last Reformation. And none of us have ever been able to get away from it. Most of our hymns are about sin. Most every sermon is about sin. And the church has never known of her absolute freedom from sin consciousness. It would do us well to study Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, very carefully. We don't have, I don't have time to quote it all. First, it tells how the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. For if it could, the worshipers have been once cleansed, would have no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance made of sins year by year. That reminds me of the altar services where we ask the believer to keep coming Sunday after Sunday to be cleansed from sin. The blood of Jesus Christ hasn't meant more to some of us than the blood of bulls and goats meant to the Jew. For it was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. And the 11th verse, And every priest stands day by day ministering and offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, for by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. The Lord Jesus Christ dealt with the sin problem for us perfectly when we were recreated and received the nature and life of God. At that time, he not only put our sin away, but he remitted all that we had ever committed. And at the same time, he imparted his own nature and righteousness to us. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, Him who knew no sin, God made to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And by that new creation, we have become the righteousness of God. Glory to God. So Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 has become a reality. It says that he, that's God, might himself <clears throat> be righteous and the righteousness of him who has faith in Jesus. Uh, well, here God declares that he becomes the righteousness of the man who accepts his son as a savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 declares that Jesus has been made to be our righteousness. God is our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. 
And by the new creation, we have become the righteousness of God in him. But somebody might be asking, what is the righteousness of God? Well, it's the ability to stand in the Father's presence without the sense of guilt, condemnation, or inferiority. It is the ability to stand there as the very sons and daughters of God Almighty so that you can go boldly unto the throne of grace, make your petition just as Jesus would if he were here. Now, faith in the Father is not built upon the word of man, but upon his own word. Man's testimony to the truth of the word has its place, but it can't take the place of the word itself. The word is the Father speaking. It's as though the master were here now in person, and that word is taking his place. That word has given us life and made us new creations. That word has sustained us and upheld us. It is the word of faith that proceeds from the very heart of the father of faith. The word is a part of the father himself. I feed on it. I breathe it into my spirit. And it is being built into my spirit consciousness. It's absolute integrity. It's life-giving equality has impregnated my very being. Man's word, like grass, withers. God's word, like himself, can never die. It can never lose its freshness, its power, its ability to recreate, to strengthen, and to give courage. You see, the word in the lips of faith becomes just like the word in Jesus' lips. The word in lips of doubt and fear is a dead thing. But in the lips of faith, it becomes life-giving and dominant. Through it, the sick are healed, Satan captives are set free. And this, this living word in the lips of faith is God's answer to the heart cry of man. Man's word may fascinate and satisfy reason for a time, but the heart demands the word of God. This word illumined by the Holy Spirit is God's light on life's pathway. The word is a part of himself. You can lean on the word as you would lean on him. You can rest in the word as you would rest in him. You can act on the word as you would act if he had just spoken to you. The word is always now, right now. Our modern psychological religions are children of the senses. They use the Bible and quote from it, but it's only man's literature to them. Their writings can't feed the hungry spirits of man. They simply entertain and thrill the people of the senses. Folks, these eternal spirits of, of ours crave the bread of God. Jesus is the bread of life. They that feed on him have no appetite for the theories of men. Don't waste time with the philosophies of men. There ain't no life in them. In him 
is life, and that life is our light. His word alone can answer the hard cry of man. Their words may answer the cry of lost, reason-ruled souls groping in the sense realm for light, but never the cry of the heart. Now, Jesus' bold and continual confession is our example. We are what he made us to be. Jesus confessed what he was. Sense knowledge could not understand it. We are to confess what we are in Christ. Men of the senses won't understand us. And to confess that you are redeemed, that your redemption is an actual reality, that you are delivered out of Satan's dominion and authority, that would be a daring confession to make. And to confess that you are an actual new creation created in Christ Jesus, that you are a partaker of the very nature and life of deity, that would amaze your friends. It isn't confessing it once, but a daily affirmation of your relationship to him, confessing your righteousness, confessing your ability to stand in his presence without the sense of guilt or inferiority. Dare to stand in the presence of sense knowledge facts and declare that you are what God says you are. Glory to God. For instance, sense knowledge declares that I'm sick with an incurable illness. I confess that God laid that disease on Jesus and that Satan has no right to put it on me. That by his stripes I am healed. And I am to hold fast to my confession in the face of apparent sense knowledge contradiction. Sense knowledge says that it's not true, that I am confessing an untruth, but I am confessing what God says. You see, there are two kinds of truth. There's sense knowledge truth and revelation truth. And they're pretty much opposed to each other. Now, I live in the new realm above the senses, so I hold fast to my confession that I am what the Word says that I am. And suppose my senses have revealed the fact that I am in great need financially. Well, the Word declares, my God shall supply every need of yours. And I call his attention to what the senses have intimated, and he knows that my expectations are from him. I refuse to be intimidated by sense evidences. I refuse to have my life governed by them because I know that greater is he that is in me than the forces that surround me and the forces that oppose me are in the senses. The power that is in me is the Holy Spirit and I know that spiritual forces are greater than the forces in the sense realm and I maintain my confession of spiritual values, of spiritual realities, in the face of sense contradictions. Now, here's a couple of uh, confessions that uh, E.W. Kenyon wrote about that uh, of his experience. He said, after having prayed for one the other morning, she was satisfied that she was perfectly healed. But now the symptoms have returned and her heart is discerned. She wonders where the difficulty lies. And I asked this party, did you tell your husband when you met him at night that you were healed? No. You see, I wasn't sure yet. I didn't want to say anything until I was positive. But you had no pain. Was there any soreness, I asked. Oh, that all left, but you see, I have to be careful. My husband is skeptical. 
and I didn't want to tell him I was healed until I was sure. Well, you can already see where her difficulty lay. She didn't believe the word. Had she made her confession to her husband, the thing would never have come back. But she played into the hands of the enemy, and he restored the same symptoms that she had had and brought back the pain and soreness. This happened because she invited him, the devil, to do it. Had she dared to stand her ground on the word and hold fast to her confession that she was healed, he wouldn't have any ground to come back to it. Our faith and our unbelief is determined by our confession. Few of us realize the effect of our spoken word on our own heart or on our adversary. He hears us make our confession of failure, of sickness, of lack, and apparently he doesn't forget. And we unconsciously go down to the level of our confession. No one ever rises above it. <clears throat> if you confess sickness, it develops sickness in your system. If you confess doubt, the doubts become stronger. If you confess lack of finances, it stops the money from coming in. And you say, I don't understand that. No, because most of us live in the sense realm and spiritual things are very indistinct. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 has to become a constant reality. It says, having then a great high priest who hath passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Our confession is that the word cannot be broken, that what the Father says is true. When we doubt the Father, we're doubting his word. And we, when we doubt his word, it's because we believe something else that is contrary to that word. Our confidence may be in the arm of the flesh. It might be in medicine. It might be in institutions. But whatever our confidence is in, if it contradicts the word, it destroys our faith life. It destroys our prayers to it, and it brings us back into bondage. Every person who walks by faith will have testings. They don't come from the Father, folk. They come from the adversary, the devil. He is refusing to allow you to escape him. You become dangerous to the adversary when you become strong enough to resist him and when you have learned to trust in the ability of the Father to meet your every need. And when that becomes a reality in your consciousness, the adversary, the devil, is defeated. But as long as he can confuse the issue and keep you in the state of flux, you are at an disadvantage. Listen, I'm telling you these things for one purpose, to strengthen your confidence in the word, to make you know that no word from God is void of power or can go by default. There isn't power in all the universe to avoid one statement of fact in this word. He said, God said, I'll watch over my word to perform it. Jeremiah 1 and 12. And again in Romans 10 and 11, What's, whosoever believeth on him shall not be put to shame. Thank you, Lord God. Your confidence is in that unbroken living word. And you hold fast to your confession in the face of every assault of the enemy.
Now, this is uh, Philippians chapter 1, 28 in the ESV. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 15, ESV. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Folks, you take your position in Christ, that you are more than a conqueror, that no matter what the testing might be in God, he's not going to let you fail. You are not standing on sense evidence. You're not standing on the faith of other people. You are standing squarely upon his own word. Your confidence is not in the prayers of others, but in this unchanging, unbreakable word, and you refused to allow your lips to destroy the effectiveness of that word in your case. Those circumstances that are around you there, you hold fast to your confession, though it would appear as though the prayer was never answered. It is your quiet assurance in his word that gives you the supremacy over your adversary. And you know that all authority is in the name of Jesus, that every demon and every disease and every circumstance has to bow to that name, glory to God. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 through 11. Wherefore also God highly exalted him and gave unto him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, my, my, my. You see that the name of Jesus has all authority. And you have a legal right to use that name in every circumstance. You're his son, his own very child. And you have come to him in the name of Jesus for this need. And he's under obligation to see that you are not put to shame. He is under obligation to make his word good. Somebody said to me this morning, God has tied himself up by his word. He can't fail us and he can't ignore us. So we need to hold fast to our confession and never, never cower for a moment, no matter how sense knowledge may produce evidence to the contrary. You're not standing on sense evidence. Feelings and appearances have no place here. This is God's field and God's alone. We walk in the light of our testimony. And our faith never goes beyond our confession. The word becomes real only as we confess its reality. And the reason for this is we walk by faith and not by sight. Sense knowledge would confess only what it had seen, heard, or felt. The people who are seeking experiences always walk by the senses. Our testimony of the reality of the word is feared by Satan. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that 
This reacts on our heart just as doubt spoken by the lips reacts on your heart. You talk of your doubts and your fears and you destroy your faith. You talk of the ability of the Father that's yours and fill your lips with praise for answers to prayers that you have asked. And its reaction upon the heart is tremendous. Faith grows by leaps and bounds. You talk about your trials and your difficulties of your lack of faith, of your lack of money, and faith shrivels and loses its virility. Your whole spirit life shrinks. You study about what you are in Christ and then confess it boldly. You dare to act on the word in the face of self-knowledge opposition. Regardless of appearance, you take your stand, you make your confession, and you hold fast to it in the face of apparent impossibilities. You see, faith doesn't ask for possible things. Faith is demanding the impossible. Prayer is never for the possible, but always for the thing that is out of reason. You know, it's God who is at work with us, in us, and for us. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? Romans 8 and 32. You see, you're launching out into the realm of the impossible, just like Abraham did when he asked for a son. You're not asking for something you can do for yourself, but for something that is beyond reason. And then you refuse to take counsel with fear or to entertain a doubt. And the hardest battles that I have ever fought have been along this line. The greatest battles I have ever won have been those that seemed the most impossible, where there was the greatest opposition, where reason discredited my faith. And I held fast to my confession, and the word was made good. Praise God. Confess your dominion over disease in Jesus' name. Never be frightened by any condition, no matter how forbidding, how impossible the case might be. It might be cancer, tuberculosis, or an accident in which death seems to be the master of the situation, but you never give in. You know you and God are masters of the situation. You never for a moment lose your confession of your supremacy over the works of the adversary. This disease, this calamity is not of God. It has but one source, and that's Satan. And in Jesus' name, you are master. You have taken Jesus' place and you're acting in his stead. You fearlessly take your position. Confess your ability in Christ to meet any emergency. Glory be to God. And if you'll always remember that Jesus met defeat and conquered him. You're facing defeat everywhere as a master. Don't let down. Keep your solid front. And here's Way's translation of Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 28. Let your life as members of one communion be worthy of the glad tidings of the Messiah, so that whether I do come and see you or whether I must still be afar and only hear news of you, I may know that you are standing firm, animated by one spirit, may know that with united soul. You are working strenuously, shoulder to shoulder, for the faith of the glad tidings. May know that you are not cowed one whit by your adversaries. Their failure to daunt you is clear evidence, an actual sign from God, 
for them that their destruction is imminent, but for you that salvation is yours. That solid front spoken of in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 5 says this, Yet in spirit I am present with you and am delighted to witness your good discipline and the solid front presented by your faith in Christ. Hey, is that solid front presented to your enemy? You can't be conquered. Your spirit's whispering, Nay, in all these things I am more than a conqueror. Every disease is of the adversary. All kinds of sin are of the adversary. All opposition to the glad tidings is of the adversary. God and I are victors. Greater is he that is in me than this opposition or this disease. There's no need that is greater than my God. There's no lack that he can't meet. This indomitable will that God has wrought in you cannot be overwhelmed or conquered, praise God. You remember what you are. You are a new creation. You are a branch of the vine. You are an heir of God. You are united with him. You and he are one, and he is the greater part of that one. There is no such thing as conquering God when his instrument refuses to admit that the enemy can overwhelm him, because you are that instrument. Philippians 4 and 11 says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. You said that you could not, and the moment that you said it, you were whipped. You said that you did not have faith, and doubt arose like a giant and bound you up. You are imprisoned with your own words. You talked failure, and failure held you in bondage. Proverbs 6 and 2 says, Thou art snared with the words of thy mouth. Thou art taken captive with the words of thy mouth. Folks, few of us realize that our words dominate us. A young man said, I was never whipped until I confessed I was whipped. Another said, the moment I began to make a bold, confident confession, a new courage that I had never known took possession of me. Another young woman said, my lips have been a constant curse. I have never been able to get the mastery of my lips. And she said, I always speak my mind. And she has few friends. Only pity causes people to go see her. Her lips have always been her curse. It isn't so bad speaking your mind if you have the mind of Christ. But as long as you have a mind dominated by the devil, few people care to hear your mind. Never talk failure. Never talk defeat. Never for a moment acknowledge that God's ability can't put you over. Become God's inside-minded, remembering that greater is he that is in you than any force that can come against you, and remembering that God created the universe with words, that words are more mighty than tanks or bombs, more mighty than the army or the navy. Learn to use words so they'll work for you and be your servants. Learn that your lips can make you a millionaire or a pauper, wanted or despised, a victor or a captive. And your words can be filled with faith that'll stir heaven and make men want you.
Remember that you can fill your words with love so they'll melt the coldest heart and warm and heal the broken and discouraged. In other words, your words can become what you wish them to be. You can make them rhyme and you can fill them with rhythm and you can fill them with hatred, with poison, or you can make them breathe the very fragrance of heaven. And now you can see vividly what your confession can mean to your own heart. And your faith will never register above the words of your lips. I'm going to tell you something. It's not so bad to think a thing as it is to say it. Thoughts may come and persist in staying, but you refuse to put them into words and they die unborn. And so cultivate the habit of thinking big things and then learn to use words that will react upon your own spirit and make you a conqueror. Jesus' confessions prove to be reality. Faith's confessions create reality. Jesus confessed that he was the light of the world and he was it. The rejection of him has plunged the world into a new darkness. He said he was the bread from heaven and it's true. The people who have fed upon his words have never suffered want. His words build faith as we act on them. Let them live in us. His words were filled with himself as we act on them. They fill us with Christ. His words feed faith and cause it to grow in power in us. The believer's word should be born of love and filled with love. Our lips are taking the place of his. Our words should never bruise or hurt, but should bless and heal. Because Jesus was the way, the reality, and the life. And we're taking his place, showing the way, confessing the reality, and enjoying the life. You'll never enjoy what you are in Christ until his love rules your lips. Until we know our legal rights in the family of God, we will never become outstanding in our faith life. We should know that the Bible is made up of two legal documents, the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, and that Jesus' death was a legal death to meet humanity's legal needs, and that his sacrifice, his substitutionary work was accepted by the Supreme Court of the universe, and that man has a legal right to take Jesus Christ as his Savior and confess him as his Lord, which gives him a legal right to eternal life, the nature of God. And that makes him a son. And as a son, he has a legal right to his father's protection and care. He has a legal right to all that Jesus purchased for him in his redemptive work. He has a legal right to the use of the name of Jesus in prayer. And when dealing with demoniacal forces, he has a legal right to the Holy Spirit's indwelling. All promises and statements of fact in the word of his, he has a legal right to a perfect redemption from Satan's dominion, from sickness and disease, from poverty and woe. And he has a legal right to stand in the Father's presence because Jesus has become his legal righteousness and he has legally become the righteousness of God in Christ. And he has a legal right to heaven as his home. And this takes prayer out of the realm of doubt and puts it into the realm of absolute certainty. Glory to God.
for folks I'm out of time. I hope this uh, helps you in your prayer life and in your faith. So get in the Word, read the Word, and believe what the Word says, and confess the Word out of your mouth. God bless you. We'll see you next time, God willing. For information, materials, and to contribute, go to unleavenedbreadministries.org. Contributions only may be addressed to David Eels, Post Office Box 231616, Montgomery, Alabama, 36123. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, I trust in you. And when I face that darkest night,